Well, this morning we are, well, Kingdom Kids, not, all right, Kingdom Kids back there. I was off and running. Um, we've got kids ages four to nine. We've got a special time for you. Uh, there's a teacher that is in the foyer back there. If you make your way back there, she'll take you uh, across to our Christian Education Center. That's our building across the street where we have classrooms, offices, and other things. Um, so parents, that's where your kids are going. We hope you'll, we ask you to get your children from there right after the service uh, from Kingdom Kids. Rest of you, we're going to be starting a new uh, short series of sermons that will take us through the four weeks of Advent and Christmas Day, which is on Sunday this year. The series is this second Adam from above, how Jesus fulfills Genesis. I don't know if you're familiar with that that phrase, second Adam from above. It's from a lesser known verse to the famous Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote the original lyrics uh, to that song back in 1739. The famous evangelist, George Whitfield, adapted them in 1753, and it's in the hymnal that Whitfield published where this line appears. But that, that phrase doesn't come from the poetic genius of either Wesley or Whitfield. It's, it's the Bible that makes this connection, this comparison, that Jesus is like another Adam. Adam, of course, being the very first human, the father of the human race. Jesus being both fully human and fully God. That's the second Adam from above, also fully God. But, but Jesus is the beginning of a new humanity, Whereas Adam is the one who bears responsibility for the sin and the death that entered the world, Jesus is the one who saves his people from their sins, saves us from the judgment of death and into life. That's why he's not just another Adam. Uh, He's the last or ultimate Adam. So these sermons uh, in this year, unlike others, we're not going to go through the, the stories about Jesus' birth or the, the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament predicting the coming of, of Messiah. Um, each week through these sermons, we're going to start in Genesis, uh, we're going to look at the creation of humankind, and then to various places in the New Testament uh, where this connects to Christ and through Christ how it connects to, to us. See, Jesus not only fulfills what it means to be human, he brings us into our full humanity, the life that God created us for. So, here's the message today. Celebrate Jesus, who shows us what God is like and makes us like God. This is another reason to celebrate Christmas, folks. We celebrate Jesus who shows us what God is like and makes us like God. So we're going to take this in three parts. Basically, Adam to Jesus to us. All right? So here's part one. Created in the image of God. Humankind was made to resemble God in order to reflect his glory. This is about Adam, but really it's about all of us. Humankind was made to resemble God in order to reflect his glory. So uh, turn, if you will, to Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 and 27. It's probably page 1 or 2 of your Bible. So, So the very beginning, after the table of contents and whatever other introductory matter, once you get into the text of the Scripture, that's where we're going to be looking. This whole chapter is the account of God's creation of the universe. 
sun, moon, and stars in the sky, fish in the sea, animals on land. And then on the sixth day, we read this. So I'm starting verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, to be created in the image of God is connected also with this idea, another phrase here, the, the role of having dominion. And, and having dominion will be our focus of the sermon next week. This week, we're just starting at the basic level of image, be created in, in the image of God, image as resemblance. Later, Genesis 5.3 says of Adam, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So if you uh, compare that in Genesis 5 with what we just read in Genesis 1, it means there's something in the way that human beings were created by God that corresponds to the way a son takes after his father. And we have all kinds of uh, little phrases, things that we say to, to, uh, for this kind of resemblance. We, we say, like father, like son. Or speaking of a daughter, they go, oh, she, she has her mother's eyes. Or, boy, he is the spitting image of his dad. Now, I'm sure that one of the very first things your parents said when they looked at you for the very first time, just imagine them, very first time, Anybody laid eyes on you, your mother, your father looked, that was probably one of the first things they said was to ask, now, who do you think he looks like? Who do you think she looks like? And it's a point of special pride and delight when that little one has your, if you're on the other side of the holding that little one, when that little one has your smile, your eyes. 1 Corinthians eleven seven says, man is the image and glory of God. We'll see in a moment that bearing God's image applies not just to Adam, but to each member of the entire human race. Well, we could see that from the passage we read. He says, I'm going to create man and them. I will, they will have dominion. Let them have dominion and so forth. So there's not just one person that's talking about even in Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27. We'll see that even further as we continue on. When we look at a human being, anyone We should see something of God, something of His glory. Even though we're not exact replicas of God, we're not little gods, no, but we are created to reflect God, to correspond to God in some way. Now, one scholar put it like this. He says, image or likeness language argues for a dependence upon an original. Whatever else may be said of an image, it must be clear that the image depends upon whatever it is an image of for its meaning. An image depends upon whatever it is an image of for its meaning. So it'd be worth us asking ourselves. You ask yourself, what do I depend on for my meaning, my identity? Do you find it in the original that you are created to be an image of? 
Do you find your meaning, significance, identity in your creator? Or, as so many people are trying to do in our day, uh, trying to create an image for yourself in terms of your public persona, the, the sort of the, the image, the personality that you project, whether, you know, when you're kind of in a group of people or maybe uh, that you're crafting online a certain, you know, certain filters that kind of make you look a certain way, um, is maybe you rely on your family name or the wealth you've inherited to say, oh, this is who I am. This is why I matter. Or maybe you're constructing a self-image through your career choice, through your personal success. See, here's who I have made myself uh, to be. But here's the thing. There's a question that you have to come right, that comes right after that. What if you fail in creating your own image? What if you can't keep up with everyone else to feel like you're something, that you're somebody? Does that make you worthless? Is that how you feel? Uh, what if a tragic accident takes away in a moment what you built your identity on? What if it takes away your ability to run or to sing? What if it takes away your fiancé or your child? What if an economic collapse takes away your job or your retirement savings? What if old age takes away your energy, your sharpness, your independence, or everyone that you love? Failure and loss can be deeply painful and disorienting. Here's the thing. Do you have an identity that goes deeper than these things. Why wouldn't you want to have an identity, a purpose, a significance that comes from God that no one can take away, not even you yourself? You can't lose it. You can't forfeit it. You can't fumble it away. When it comes from God, it's yours, that identity, that significance, that purpose. So whatever happens, see, this is the beauty as a, a, as a, as someone who knows that your identity is something that no one can take away, that you can't lose, that whatever happens then, triumph or tragedy, you know you can glorify him in any situation. You can say, in my pain, God, I want to glorify you today. Or God, in my success, let, may, may the world see you. May you be glorified in, in the victory that I am enjoying right now. Another implication of this teaching that we are created in the image of God is this, it gives to every human being a kind of dignity, a dignity that demands a certain respect. Later in Genesis, Genesis 9, 6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for because God made man in his own image. Now, we've all been, I'm sure, horrified by recent killings in uh, college campuses, uh, a nightclub, at Walmart. But understand, it doesn't matter whether the victims are blonde girls in Idaho or young black men in Virginia or people who identify as LGBTQ in Colorado, uh, someone at the bottom of the economic scale uh, working hourly in a break room at Walmart. Killing a human being is wrong because God made each one in his own image. Now, I trust that you are not tempted by that kind of violence or murder, but listen to this in the New Testament. Listen to what James 3, 8 and 9 says about the tongue. Speaking about the tongue, our, our speech, what we say, 
Our tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, I'm going to assume you're not out there killing people today, but how about cursing? Mm, yeah, because it's saying here, because every human being is made in the likeness of God, you must not come to church and, oh, bless God, uh, praise God, worship God, honor God, and then turn around and curse people, demean human beings, insult them, belittle them. It's, he's saying it's not only inconsistent, James says it's evil. It's a kind of blasphemy. It's related to a profanity to treat a human in the image of God as something worthless, disposable, trash. Those two passages, Genesis 9-6 and James 3-9, show us, again, every single human being is created in the image of God. Not just that first one, Adam. Not just Adam, not just Adam and Eve, but humankind, you and me. Everyone that you see, the folks hanging out on the street corner, people sitting in the nursing home, the kind, whatever comes to mind to you that you may be tempted to ignore or dismiss or some even hate. But these passages also mean this, okay, everyone has the image of God, everyone, everyone but I wonder if you, you can feel something of the tension. These passages also mean we continue to be image bearers of God, even though we live in a world of sin and are, each one of us, sinners, blasphemers, cursers. If everyone is, of us is also guilty of hatred, of cursing, if not violence, how is it that we still bear the image of God? In what sense is that true? Do, do we or do we not bear the image of God? Well, imagine... Imagine a car uh, getting into a car accident. Thankfully, no one is hurt, but your vehicle is, shall we say, disfigured. Uh, that, that vehicle might be in such bad shape that it, is, it can't be driven or it cannot be repaired. But understand, it doesn't become something else entirely. I mean, it, it's not a duck or a turnip. It's a car. It may be a wreck, but it's a car. That same principle holds true for you as a human being. You, you might not be, there might be some things that are wrong with you. There might be things that, that, that you are, uh, you don't quite function the same way that a, that, that a fully uh, healthy functioning human being is, but you're still a human being. And that has incredible implications for all kinds of ethical issues. Think about abortion. It doesn't matter if you are very, very, very tiny, still in the womb, you're a human being. Or euthanasia. You, you may have, uh, at the other end of life spectrum, you may have no memory due to dementia. But that's a human being. You may not be able to, to chew and swallow. But that's a human being. Think about the issue of torture. A person might be a criminal or a prisoner of war. But they're a human being. And there are some things that you just do not do with image bearers. In the same way, sin does not take away our humanity, our being created in the image of God, but it does disfigure, it does corrupt. We do not resemble our Father as we ought. 
we do not reflect his glory as we ought. So what is the answer? Do we just say, well, we teach the Bible that we're made in the image of God, and hey, folks, let's start acting like it. Well, if so, the sermon could end here, but it wouldn't be good news. I'm here to tell you that there is good news, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. Part two, he is the image of God. Christ is the perfect revelation of God who reconciles sinners to God. Christ is the perfect revelation of God who reconciles sinners to God. Now, I'll ask you to turn to one more passage. I've re- been reading a lot of verses. I'll ask you to go here with me. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Way ahead in the New Testament, the page number on the Pew Bible is also in the, in the uh, order of service. If that helps you, get there. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. It's still very early in Paul's letter. And we find Paul, as we we're reading through, we find Paul reveling in the way that God can make it so his people walk worthy of him, fully pleasing to him. How can God make sinful people uh, walk worthy of him, be fully pleasing to him? It's through Jesus Christ, his son. So, I told you to turn there. I need to get there. Here we go. Verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, even just after that one verse, we're already comparing Jesus to Adam, right? Because this one is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. But is Paul saying that Jesus is the new number one human being, or is he saying something more? Well, verse 16 begins with the word for, which means it's, it's going to explain, Paul's going to explain what he means by the firstborn of creation. Spoiler alert, it does not mean he is the very first creature, or he is the first uh, or part of the creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn, excuse me, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, let's do a whole sermon on this passage. This is just one part, so it's going to be brief. But it's clear that Paul is not saying that Jesus is a Ooh, he's a really special created being. No, he is the creator of all. He is called the firstborn because he is both the son of God, the son of God, and he is the preeminent one. Now, we could paraphrase Paul to say, hey, you remember Genesis in the beginning? Well, Christ is the beginning. That's what he said there in verse 18. He is the beginning. And, and Jesus is no mere reflection of God. Verse 19 for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3 says something very similar. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's who Jesus is. Jesus does not merely reflect the glory of God. He is the glory. He is God. Fully human and fully God, second Adam from above. Now, of course, that speaks to what we 
what we call the deity of Christ, that is Jesus is God, but it's also important that he does this as a human, another Adam. For all the ways that we have failed to reflect God's glory, to represent God faithfully in his world, Jesus came to show us what God is like because he is God the Son, and sons take after their fathers, spit and image. Jesus said in John five nineteen, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, like Father, like Son. Not just a similarity of behavior, but of character, of nature. In fact, Jesus said to his disciple Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's just as true today. If you want to know what God looks like, what God is like, you look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the God you can't see we can see in Jesus. Now, yeah, I know well, I can't. Jesus is not here. I can't look at Jesus today. But think about it. Do you want to know if God is mighty? Look at Jesus. Look at the one who turned a raging sea into perfect calm. Do you wonder? Do you wish you could see if God is loving? See Jesus' compassion for the hurting, for the broken, for the outcast. Are you afraid that God might not be merciful? See Jesus move toward the sinner, calling them to come home. Are you worried that God won't be able to meet your needs? See Jesus feed the multitudes, heal the sick, forgive the sinner, raise the dead. Jesus shows us what God is like. He is the perfect revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And that means something more than simply giving us accurate information about God, as if all we are doing is simply like like scientists doing uh, research or journalists investigating a story. We're all just theologians trying to get data about God. No, you might be here, uh, in fact, as someone who finds the Bible interesting, and it is. It's inter- it can be interesting as literature and as history, but folks, it is something more than that. This word reveals the word of God, Jesus. It, it's the way that, that he brings us then as human beings who were created to reflect God's glory and who are now blind and unbelieving, we can be brought into the light by this word that reveals to us who Jesus is, who reveals to us who God is. That is what's going on. 2 Corinthians 4 says it like this, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It says just a bit later, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, creation, Genesis 1-3, has God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you're, if you're blinded by sin, blinded by, by Satan, understand you cannot turn the light on for yourself. It's not just a matter of doing, doing your own research, if I'm going to figure it out, but, but understand as you open this book, as you come, the same God who spoke light into being before there was sun or star, any stars to shine. He can open your eyes to see. He can, can get, help you to know him personally as you look at Jesus. And I wonder, is the light coming on for you today? That's what I pray is real in your life. 
Now, I hope you still have your Bible open to Colossians 1. Uh, looking back at verse 19 again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, just to make it simple here, if you're a believer, this is true of you, what he said, once you were alienated from God, now Christ has reconciled you to God. How? End of verse 20, by making, making peace by the blood of the cross. Making peace, like reconciled, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 22, by his death, he presents us holy and blameless before God. This is the heart of the gospel, the good news. This is why we have a cross hanging on our wall. It's why it sits atop church steeples around the world. The cross is where the innocent Jesus was condemned, crucified by those who would not accept him as Messiah, Savior, Lord, but the judge of heaven handed down a different ruling. He said Jesus' payment covers the debt of sin of all who put their trust in him. That's how the sinner is forgiven. That's how the alienated becomes reconciled. That's how we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you want to see whether or not God is holy and just? Look at Christ on the cross. A price had to be paid for sin. Do you, want, do you wonder whether the God that's out there, the God who made the world is a God who is merciful and gracious? Look at Christ on the cross. He paid the price for you. He is the image of the invisible God. Look and live. Now, there's one part, one more part to this story of the image of God. It started by telling us that we were made to bear the image, but in so many ways we failed to do that. So failed to live up uh, so far failed to live up to the calling, the dignity, the, the, the beauty that we were meant to bear. Then Jesus comes as the perfect image of God because he is God, also human being, but there's more than forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus restores us to reflect, resemble him, and so reflect the glory of God. So this is part three, conformed to his image. In Christ, so we're talking about those who have put their faith in him, those who are believing in him, trusting him. In Christ, you have been made new and are being renewed for God's glory. So if you're still uh, in Colossians there, if you turn over a page or two to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Again, this is Paul talking to believers, those who have been reconciled to God in Christ. But this is about, this part is about how they are to be living as Christians. So verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3 in Colossians, 
Paul says to these believers, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That, that last verse is the source for our uh, wall decor over here. Here, Christ is all and in all, in every believer. Now, it's easy to spot the connection to the image of God. Uh, at the end of verse 10, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. But you might not notice another connection because it is somewhat obscured in the translation. Do you see the footnote in verse 9 when it says that Christians have put off the old self, put on the new self? In the original, the Greek language, it's literally the old man. You put off the old man, and technically the, the Greek word for man can refer to an individual male or for humans in general. This is the same in Hebrew, uh, Adam, a- Adam, Adam. Adam can be uh, one specific man. It can be humankind. Let us make Adam in our image. Uh, male and female, he created them. So it can refer not just to one man, but to the human race. And because in our culture, uh, especially in the last generation or so, we're more sensitive to male and female distinctions, the word man can sound to many ears too specifically male. So especially in context where it's referring to both men and women, the Greek word is rendered uh, person instead of man here, self. So is it an accurate translation? Yes, as far as it goes. But it doesn't help us to see the connection to creation and to re-creation, to new creation. Just as God created man in Genesis, He makes you a new man in Christ. New man or woman, new person, new you, new creation in Christ. That's who we are. So understand, Jesus doesn't fix us up a little bit. It's not like we're a car that's been through a fender bender, and he just sort of, he's just sort of popping out dents. You know, this is just, we can get this back. It's okay. Uh, it's it's going to be all right. No, he, this is all new. It, he, the old man is gone. The, we are a new man like, like Adam and Eve in the garden. Paul's letter to the Ephesians co- covers a lot of the same ground as Colossians. Ephesians 4, 21, 24 echoes the same stuff as we've just read in Colossians, and I'll read it reading man instead of self. He says, you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Men and women, young and old, yes, you you are a new person, a new Adam. In Christ. Now, did you hear that at the end? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, yes, in one sense, uh, you bearing the image and likeness of God is not about your physical appearance. Like, oh, he has his father's eyes or she has her mother's nose. It's, it's not about your physical experience when we bear the image of God. And yet, think about it, it is something that can be seen. Just as you and I can see the character, the glory of God in the life of Jesus, so others should be able to see, yes, see, the goodness and greatness of God in us. 
So people around us may wonder, is God gracious? Could we say, could I say, well, sure. Look at Bruce. Look at Diana. Shouldn't we be able to say that? Isn't what, that what the world needs to see? A world who can't see God, who has not seen Jesus, uh, how, can they see it in us by the power of the Spirit renewing us from within? Let it be said, when anyone wonders, is God merciful? Yes, because I see Kim. Because I've seen Micah. When someone is alone or desperate, longing to know, is God kind? We, can we say, yes, look at Jerry. Look at Gwen. This is what we were created for. This is the purpose for which we are recreated in Christ. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, also, he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Please don't hear this as simply like, okay, i got to work harder to glorify God this week. Yes, that is your calling. That is our mission. But this is his plan, his purpose that he is doing, that he will carry out. He, this has been his plan from eternity past. He's, he's brought you into life in Christ, and he is going to continue to work that in you until we reach glory perfected. This is what God's doing. It's his unfailing purpose, and it's also then our prayer. God, do what you said in your word that you want to do in me. I put my faith in Christ. I trust you've made me a new man, a new woman, a new creation, just as surely as you made Adam and Eve to bear your likeness. I know, I know there's more of your renewing work that needs to be done in me for me to resemble you in holiness and righteousness, for me to reflect your glory in a way that other people can see, that makes other people want to come to you. This ought to be our prayer. This was the heartfelt prayer in those old lyrics to Wesley and Whitfield's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It said this, Adam's likeness now efface. That means remove or erase. Adam's likeness, the corruption, the sin. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, work it in us by thy love. And when you believe that he will do that, when you start to see it happen in your life, perhaps slowly over time, perhaps suddenly and dramatically, you have all the more reason to celebrate this season. We celebrate Jesus who shows us what God is like and makes us like God. That's what he's doing in us through Christ. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, for 